If we really want an inclusive society, it has to be a place where everybody can feel that they can bring their multiple selves to the table. So that becoming, it's not necessarily a, a linear trajectory in a sort of positivistic sense, you know, that you know, we're sort of getting scientifically better all the time. Uh, I think it's something much more mysterious. It's about connecting and reconnecting. And to find something that's describing human flourishing, that captures learning wherever it's happened and can tell the whole story. Hello and welcome to the Coconut Thinking Podcast. I'm your host, Benjamin Freud, and we are in collaboration with Intrepid N News. Today's guest is Conrad Hughes. Conrad is the campus and secondary principal at the International School of Geneva, La Grande Boissière, the oldest international school in the world. He also led two major projects with UNESCO to rethink the guiding principles for learning in the 21st century and preventing violent extremism through education. Conrad has published three books on different aspects of 21st century learning. He is also a member of the advisory board for the University of the People. He's a senior fellow at UNESCO's International Bureau of Education, and he's a research assistant at the University of Geneva's Department of Psychology and Education. He regularly contributes to the World Economic Forum's agenda blog and speaks in conferences around the globe. We talk about the multiplicity of identities, how we all show up in different ways at different times, we also talk about becoming and how it's a process that is non-linear and also one that is emergent. And very importantly, we talk about assessment and how do we tell the stories of learning beyond the classroom? How do we capture the information to build those stories and how do we tell those stories in different ways? And Conrad is certainly a pioneer in that area. Check us out on www.coconut-thinking.design. You'll find our articles, presentation, resources there that hopefully you'll find interesting. And in the meantime, I'll leave space for my conversation with Conrad. Well, hi, Conrad. Really uh, excited to have you on the podcast. I uh, followed you on LinkedIn and uh, seen uh, your, your talks and, and read some of the articles and also specifically the articles that you forwarded. And you could always uh, tell a lot about what captures someone's imagination by, by what they forward and, and, and the narrative there. I'll start with the question that we ask all our guests, which is, who are you and what story do you want to tell? Hi, Benjamin. Thank you for this opportunity. So I'm Conrad. I'm a head of school. I'm an educator. I teach. I teach philosophy to 15-year-olds. I'm an author. I, I write books on education. And my story starts in 1974 in South Africa. Um, my early years were pretty miserable when it comes to education. I was at an all-boys school. Um, there was corporal punishment. I was disrespected by my teachers, and I disrespected my teachers. I can remember crying on my way to school several times. It was really a brutal educational experience, and it was predicated on the values of a dysfunctional, iniquitous apartheid state, which is what South Africa was in the 70s. My father was an examiner, uh, both of my parents academics, and my father was an examiner for the IB English A literature oral component. In those days, they were visiting examiners, and he used to take me down to this wonderful place, this sort of oasis of freedom, which was Waterford Kamplaba, the United World College of Southern Africa in Swaziland, which is now Eswatini, a small kingdom nestled between Mozambique and South Africa. And I remember uh, just walking around the school at the age of about seven, eight, and seeing students from all over the world. There were no uniforms. It was co-educational. Uh, and I told him one day, I said, I, I want to go to the school. And he sent me there. So that was the second chapter of my schooling, Waterford. And that opened my mind. The 
teachers were fantastic. They cared about us. Um, I was with children from all over Africa. It really opened up my mind and it gave me a passion for education. And I, I think I realize this now when I look back, I had this teacher called Rolf Usman, this French teacher with dashing uh, pale blue eyes and thick mane of gray hair and used to toss his uh, scarf over his shoulder and write poems and the sound of his teeth sinking into apples and he'd smoke golwas. We used to have coffee espresso in his house when he taught us French literature. Anyway, I wanted to be one of his students, but I couldn't because he was a French B higher teacher and I was doing French B standard and I was getting a four out of seven in French B. And the counselor told me, look, you can't move up to French higher. You know, you might fade it. But I was so determined that they couldn't stop me. So I shifted my subject package. I went with this teacher and um, I realized now it wasn't so much the content. Of course, there was the beauty and the passion for the content that was driving it. But it was really the magic around around those classes that, that drew me in. And, you know, my story goes on. I I, I did my university studies in, in different countries, in South Africa, in France, in England. My wife, Estelle, she's from Cameroon. We met. Uh, I'm a musician. I play the guitar. We started up a band. She was singing. Um, and, you know, we, we got quite serious at one point. Um, we we had two children. Uh, Eloise is my daughter. She's 18. She's a high-performing track and field uh, athlete. She's the regional and Geneva champion for 100 meters, 200 meters, and long jump. And my son, Melchior, he's a basketball player. He now plays in Madrid. Uh, he's 16. Um, Estelle is a head of school as well um, in Senegal. So right now, we've got a sort of globally uh, spread out family, and that's something we've done intentionally. Who I am is, is it's, it's my story, but it's also... If I look at different philosophers, there's a philosopher I quite like is Heidegger. I mean, he, he, the, the problems with Heidegger politically, but his idea of becoming, of um, this unfolding of who you are, I find quite compelling. You know, Marcus Aurelius, uh, the Roman philosopher, he said, whether you've been alive for five years or 40 years or 80 years, it makes no difference. Because what is the past? It's just a vague recollection and a reconstruction of things that are no more. And what is the future? It's just a set of fantasies and often anxieties. So the one thing we share is the present with the people around us in the here and now. And I think that fulfilling that presence is defining who you are in an ever unfolding becoming, you know, having a fixed identity saying, this is who I am. I'm no more, no less. This will determine my tomorrow. I think that closes down your thinking. So when, you, when I answer that question, who am I? It's, there's my story, there's my biography, which is behind me, but then there's who I am right now. And it's just the person sharing this, this space with you and, and moving to, towards a future me. And I really appreciate that. And as I mentioned before we hit record, so much of what we learn about someone is how they answer that question. And I'm not saying that it's a question that's you know, absolutely fantastically architected for this, but the response is a very open question are also part of the story. Before, before we get into this, because I, I really like this idea of becoming, um, as, uh, is, is, I'm going to ask the question we ask also everyone else. We start with two, and then we, we pull the threads from there. How do you define learning? Great question. Oof, I'd say there are three answers. There's a technical cognitive 
answer, which is learning is the long-term memory that you have consolidated, that you are able to retrieve. Now, retrieving long-term memory is done through working memory. And you've got there the two pillars, if you like, of cognition. What you store in your long-term memory, which, which can be crazy infinite, is kind of what you know. But what you know only means something if you can retrieve it, if you can actualize it, if you can apply it. Uh, and so retrieval mechanisms, which are to do with conceptualizing information, um, repeating information so that it's at the surface of long-term memory and you can you can bring it up quickly. Um, that's also what what learning is about. I think someone who who is learning is sorting information. They are drawing it into long-term memory and they're learning how to retrieve it. And that's a very technical cognitive definition of learning. There's another definition which is cultural. I'm interested in culturally responsive pedagogies. To me, education is a cultural act first and foremost. And learning is defined and described by culture. What I mean by that is it's the environment you're in and how you adapt to your environment, which will define and color the type of learning and learner that you are learning that takes place in the learner that you are. But there are also different cultural traditions in what learning means. And you're in an international school, especially if you're the leader of an international school. I think it's very important to understand that there are different ways of teaching, there are different ways of learning, there are different cultural expressions. You know, we're not, we're not robots. There's not one way of doing it. So I think it's celebrating the cultural diversity of what learning means. Um, learning can take place through song through dance, through narrative, through more uh, scientific expressions of the human condition, um, through, through different types of intelligence, if you like. And, and these ultimately have got a cultural underpinning. So I like to look at learning and teaching as an act of culture. And I think the third uh, definition I'd give, it's, it's the attitude that has to underpin learning. One of my favorite quotations is uh, from Lao Tzu, the Chinese philosopher who says, I just love this quote. He says, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. When the student is ready, the teacher appears. If you, if you, if you want to learn from a brick wall, you will learn. You know? So don't sort of be walking around waiting for someone to teach you. Be the learner. You can deconstruct the idea of the teacher if you really want to learn. It's, it's, it's that lifelong learning attitude that, that we need to seek within us. And I communicate that to my students. I want them to become autonomous. I want them to take ownership of the learning process, to be lifelong learners, and to get away from the idea of being passive recipients of, of information broadcasting. Um, so just to wrap that up, there's a technical cognitive idea, which is long-term memory consolidation. There's a more sort of cultural uh, communal idea of it being a, um, something that can be looked at in many different ways. And then there's the attitude behind it, which I think is universal. It's, it's that desire to learn. And we mustn't forget that. That's so important. And, and all these three are, of course, intertwined and, and build up on each other. I, I want to pick up on the one about culture and specifically whether or not there are structuralist elements to this, about whether or not the culture defines how we are or what is the reciprocity or, or that, that two-way movement between the self and the culture. How do you see that? Because there, you know, there's not one culture. There's so many different angles to culture, particularly when we live in a world where we can connect with folks all over, all over, and we're part of different communities. 
How how do we work with that at the individual level that when the individual is part of so many different cultures, so many different communities, so many different ways, how do we navigate that? Because, and again, I'm going to bring it back to the structuralist idea of whether or not that defines or how much, um, and I don't want to misuse the word and simplify it because it's way more complicated than, than how it is usually used, but the, the learner's agency also to resist or go with the flow of that culture. Uh, okay, this is rich. This is interesting. Again, I mean, there's no simple simple answer to what you're saying, and, and I, I like the way the conversation is going. Um, global, you know, not not local or global, global. So being rooted in some local context, I think, is increasingly important. Um, being a, an observer of culture, a kind of airport transition lounge, uh, cosmopolitan. Uh, traveler. Uh, that's okay. But what we really need for societal renewal, for uh, a better tomorrow, you know, for, for planetary uh, well-being, is local action. And when we talk about a global citizen, I think we have to start with local citizenship. Where are you rooted? Who are your neighbors? What's right in front of you? What is the space you're occupying? And how do you connect with that? You know, one of the first things I did when I arrived in my village in uh, in Switzerland is I joined the local fire brigade. I'm, I'm a volunteer fireman um, because I wanted to to contribute to the local community and actually build up some kind of rapport with my with my fellow villagers. And now I know everybody, um, and it's 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 immensely fulfilling and rich. This is not my native culture, so to speak. You know, but I've been welcomed in here. I made a gesture towards a local instance. It doesn't stop me from being, uh, trying to be globally minded and, and being concerned by planetary issues. So I think you know that idea of local action and, and global consciousness is important. Um, the French philosopher Ernst Renan, uh, he has this notion that I quite like about the, the particular and the universal. So we're all rooted in particular incidents of culture, but there are some incidents of culture that have a universal appeal and they become these beacons of humanity. It might be um, a uh, an, an Indian raga, or maybe it will be um, you know the Eiffel Tower, or it will be um, an African griots song, or or possibly a a Russian folk tale. These things that are rooted in culture, but they become universally famous because of the the transcendental power they have in them. And that's what connects us and federates us. And, and I think that's what's really beautiful. When we're culturally literate, we know more about different cultures. And I think it actually unites us much more than, than separates us. The last thing is, you know, you're talking about essentially this idea of um, multiple identities, of intersectionalities. It's, it's difficult to, to fix people to one culture. And increasingly, we've got these hybrid identities. Um, absolutely. The more, to me, the, the, the educated person is someone who is, who realizes um, through time the, how deep the rabbit hole goes and how many different connections you can make. Everybody has multiple identities at some level. You, you, can, you can come from a monocultural environment, uh, maybe both of your parents, yourself, uh, you, you're all born in the same town. But there's your, there's your political affiliation, there's your gender, 
there is your um, there are these different strains of identity, um, and I like the idea, and I always you know work on this with my 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 team at school of teachers bringing their their whole selves, their full selves into the classroom to encourage students to do the same thing, to celebrate all the different layers of your identity. And it might be, you know, that you have six passports and you speak, you know, several languages, or it might be at some other level of intersectionality that you feel confident enough to bring out who you are. If we really want an inclusive society, it has to be a place where everybody can feel that they can bring their multiple selves to the table. So this... Again, there's tensions, and they're not necessarily contradictory tensions. Sometimes they're complementary, depending on how we we kind of cut where we're looking at. You bring up Astronon, and and, and and you know, there's a lot of what he wrote that also kind of promoted French nationalism, and and that brought in also to the 20th century, uh, and and extra Francaise, and and so forth. So so it's not all to throw away, but we have to much like Heidegger take it with a little bit of, of care. And, and I'm, I guess what I'm really interested in from what you brought in, I mean, I'm interested in a lot of things, but what really caught my eye and is the tension between the, the universalism of certain values and the uh, plural plurality of, of values or, or different identities. And of course, all this within the history coming again from the 19th century of colonialism and imposing universal values and seeing these are the universal values that we have. And I don't want to, again, simplify this, but there seems to be quite a resistance to the idea of universality, not in a postmodern way, but in, in, in a way that is more about trying to say, well, let's try to rectify the colonial injustices of the past. And this idea of universality has done so much damage that that too we need to take with a little bit of salt. I'm not quite positioning a... a a question here, but I, I just want to play around with these very complex and complicated issues of universality at the same time respecting local cultures. How do we navigate that when there's such a sense of injustice among so many peoples in the world? Okay, okay. So, I mean, colonization is the imposition of of culture, uh, of, of um, socioeconomic uh, and legislative systems on a people. Okay, so it's in that violent opposition. And the deculturation, the forced deculturation that comes about because of it, that we have the trauma and the crime against humanity, which is colonization, and we're still living it out today. Um, for example, you know, uh, the language of instruction in many schools in Africa is one of the reasons why, if you look at UNESCO statistics, uh, the you know, there are high failure rates in sub-Saharan uh, secondary schools, for example. Children are being, still being forced to learn in a third or a fourth language uh, other to theirs. And, and that comes from that colonial legacy, which is forced imposition of culture. So that's a, a contrived and violent type of universalism. On the other hand, if, if you're to move away from that and you to think about the 21st century with all the tensions that are around us, and for example, a school, Okay, let's say an international school or any workplace that, that, that you are navigating. I believe that if you create an inclusive environment, it means that people feel free to bring their cultures to the table and we can learn from each other. And in those learning moments, there might be, there might be moments where our open-mindedness and our tolerance is tested because it's unfamiliar to us and, and we can't quite you know, understand, but it's very rich. Um, and it'll lead us to be more culturally responsive and sensitive. And through that developing, and we come back to this idea of 
you know, the unfolding uh, of the lifelong learner, the, the, the ever becoming new self, through that learning, you become more culturally literate and you're able to see the universal power of that is embedded in so many different cultures. You know, this is the work, um, if, if you take fairy tales, if you take folk stories, if you take um, ancestral stories, um, they have a universal appeal. That's got nothing to do with colonization. That's to do with the human spirit, and that's what we've got to latch on to. I, I have problems with this idea that, well, you've got your truth, and I've got my truth, and we both live in these supremely subjective solipsisms, and who are you to, to even begin to tell me who I am, and I wouldn't dare tell you who you are. Where exactly is that going to take us? apart from just continued isolation. Sustainable development goal 17 to me is actually the most important. It's partnerships for the goals. And if we're not partnering up here, we've lost it. So we've got to come together. That's difficult because the playing field is not level and we're living in uh, the aftermath of uh, this, uh, this skewed, colonially dominated um, game or sort of game uh, you know, structure. So undoing that, ensuring that there's equity and not just equality, but still keeping people federated and joyful, that's what we need to look at. I think, you know, it, it, it's actually very complex. At the end of the day, it's all about celebrating and loving the fact that we've got so many cultural traditions that we can bring together. That's what I keep coming back to. That to me is what inclusion is about. Mm. And, and, I, and I'm with you about, about being very careful of that postmodern, you know, everybody's got their truth and so there is no truth and so forth. I, I, I'm completely with you on that. And, and I find it, um, you know, that I mean, no, 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 there's a real problem with that because it can also lead to, you know, to, to, to bullying, to false accusations, uh, to this kind of supreme subjectivity. It's terrifying. I mean, we we, know, we have to have systems and processes that protect people. And part of the protection is not the domination as well. There has to be kind of a, a moving beyond post-postmodernism, post metamodernism. Well, I, I'm not entirely sure that's the answer either, but certainly something that, that has some kind of objectivity depending on how we cut what we're looking at. I, uh, I'm interested then in the next stage of this, which is this idea of becoming, because it is about becoming ourselves and also about becoming together. Uh, we have to celebrate what we have together, not just as individuals, but how we come together as as a community, as as as, as a collective, as how we commune. Maybe um, how how does this play? You you brought up Hadir. How does this play? This idea of becoming. What what does this mean in terms of linking the past, the present, the future? Which we are in the present, but we can't escape our future or our past. How how does this unfold? If you can. Uh, uh, give give our listeners and uh, a bit more insights into this. Okay. Well, I'm going to turn now to um, a less polemical philosopher. He's actually a psychologist, Gordon Allport, and his his work on social psychology and contact theory, which goes back to the, the mid 50s. Um, it's pretty interesting, and it's it's been uh, tested and researched quite a bit since then by Pettigrew by Trop, even Greenwald, Banaji, you know, the implicit association test. A lot of that work goes all the way back to contact theory. Uh, I wrote a book on it, in fact, Understanding Education and Prejudice. It was my, my doctoral thesis. Um, 
prejudice, stereotyping, okay, discrimination, these huge problems that we have. Uh, how do we how do we move away from them? Maybe we'll never be able to eradicate them, but how can we uh, create a, a climate where there's less of it? And contact theory is the idea that first we should be working on a goal, a project together. Okay. Um, so just sort of being in a space where we are uh, together is not enough. It has to be, we have to be working on something, a project. And it needs to be a project that unites us. Um, there need to be ground rules around people feeling safe, people being able to, um, people keeping open-minded. It has to be supported by uh, authorities uh, so that if if we're not following the norms and the agreement about respecting one another, there's courageous and brave leadership to call people in and say, this is not okay. Um, if you're working together on a project, if there are clear ground rules based on respect and it's supported by a, a, a superstructure, I think you'll be working towards something good. Um, let's let, let's work on a project together. Just, you know, the way children do in, in a class project, it's a beautiful thing to see them designing something together, that kind of collaboration. It, it brings out the best in people, but it needs to be curated. It needs to be designed in such a way, again, that people are feeling included and they can bring their best selves to that work. So uh, I think... You know, there, there, there are lots of projects that we need to develop, social projects, environmental projects, projects for humanity. I mean, they're basically the sustainable development goals. Uh, let's, let's work on those together. The power of UNESCO is that they've given us in the world of education this, this I'm going to use the word universal, and, and, and you know, again, we can deconstruct it, but um, this federating uh, space, which, which is about our planet. Uh, something we share together and, and how we need to work together for this. You know, it was in my school all the way back in, in 1953 that the, the model United Nations system was, was invented, in fact. Um, interestingly, by the same teacher, Robert Leach, who went on to, to set up the, the International Baccalaureate Diploma Program, and, uh, which is about 10, 15 years later. The model United Nations system, we still call it the Student League of Nations. It's interesting because what you got there, it's the ground rules of diplomacy, you know, the, the, the right to the floor, the right to reply, voting for or against a resolution, drafting a resolution using ground rules and objective standards that are ratified by all. Diplomacy is such an important vehicle for, for humanity. And it's really at that level of intergovernmental cooperation that we can still maybe save the planet uh, and, 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 and move towards a project that's, that's way bigger than all of us, which is the, the world. And you bring up UNESCO and what's really interesting, and it'll be fascinating to see how this unfolds, is in the Futures of Education report that came out at the end of last year, there was a section that was not talked about so much because Ukraine and COVID, unfortunately, you know, they didn't, didn't allow this, this report to have as much um, uh, attention as, as it deserved, really about going towards the, the more than human, the non-human world as well, 
moving away from anthropocentric ways and, and, and seeing how we share the planet with all life. And, and, and again, we're working with these identities, these identities of being one species, being part of multiple species, all species. It's just, a, a, you know, again, this, this pluriverse to, to work with and, and how we see each other. Yeah, that's so interesting. I think many of the keys, and, and we, let's cycle back to, you know, colonization, um, imperialism, the, the negative connotations with this, this idea of universalism from a sort of 19th century perspective. Um, if, you, if you go back to ancestral knowledge systems, you find across many different groups, and we study this in philosophy, we look at Yoruba cosmology, we look at Ubuntu systems of thought, uh, we, we look at, um, at Buddhism in, in my philosophy course, you see respect for nature, um, a love of nature, a veneration of nature. That is critical. You know, we've lost our way in in, in a post-industrial society. Uh, we walk into a supermarket and you've got you know animal corpses chopped up in in plastic containers. Um, where's the love of nature there? You look at the practices of uh, peoples from Amazonia, from you know the, the, the first peoples of Australia, Southern Africa, many different parts of the world, thousands of years ago. You have the idea of a, of, of a parsimonious, balanced lifestyle, respect for nature. Also, a lot of community healing, coming together. You know, I was asked the question the other day about sort of when do you make mistakes and what's an example of a mistake you've made recently. Often we make, we make mistakes alone. We're less likely to make them together. So, you know, the whole palava tree idea yeah, that you get in, in, in many African customs where the village comes together and we discuss things as a group, that's ancestral. We need, and, and, and ultimately, I think we need, to, we, we need to look to those ancestral knowledge systems uh, as a way of getting back uh, our humanity and that relationship we have with the ecosystem that you were describing. Um, it's interesting how animals were venerated by ancient uh, cultures, the cobra for Egyptians, the, uh, you know, the cow in, in ancient uh, Hindu uh, literature and iconography, um, the importance of animals in, in ancient Greek um, iconography. Uh, they symbolize power, grace, uh, life, and are, are literally, you know, worshipped and venerated. Uh, and today, of course, you know, we creatures are becoming extinct because of the way we're behaving. So it's there's a long journey back. I think we have to take. To something that's within us, it's atavistic, it's, it's deep down inside us. So that becoming, that sort of Heideggerian becoming, it's, um, it's not necessarily a, uh, a linear trajectory in a sort of positivistic sense, you know, that you know, we're sort of getting scientifically better all the time. Uh, I think it's something much more mysterious. Uh, it's about connecting and reconnecting. And I feel this because, you know, I've had the privilege to to grow up uh, in, in, in Africa and in Southern Africa. And when I took my children to the, the Kruger Park, you know, which is this extraordinary game reserve in, in South Africa, it's 40,000 square kilometers, it's bigger than Wales. Uh, for the first time, uh, for them to, to connect with that, 
land. It was. It's. It's not about the animals. I don't think. It's. It's not about the game drives. It's just about standing uh, on the hot earth, and you feel this primeval force running into you, and 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 you're at one with the universe. It's just such a powerful spiritual feeling, uh, and everything is pristine. It's. It's. It's beautiful. It's clean. It hasn't been spoiled by human beings. It hasn't been built up. You know. Um, that's it's it's a kind of to use maybe a, a Western slightly uh, you know colonial idea kind of lost paradise, but that's really what it is. Um, and there's few and fewer places like that. Wow, I mean you know it's that 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 is increasingly the 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 thing that we have to integrate in all of our education systems. It's 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 how do we preserve what we've got left? So there's a lot of things that again come tied together here. You brought up earlier Lao Tzu, so you brought up the Buddha. I'll, uh, I'll throw in, Her, you know, Heraclitus. They all walked the earth more or less the same time, and they all talked about the fact, you know, the river flows, and and you know, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not beings and, and, and static. So I'm going to keep that here. I'm going to bring also ancient wisdoms and the idea, you know, which again you talked about universalities. It seems that people from from the North Pole all the way to the South Pacific have the same sense the same sense of being at one with the universe. It's simplifying, of course. It brought up to my mind this idea of rites of passage, this idea of these traditions that have been found across the world of rites of passage. So if I put that on one side, and then I think about the schools that we have today that are so obsessed with quantifying learning, with assessment, with putting scores, with dehumanizing learning, dehumanizing the experience of learning. How can we, if at all, reconcile these ways that we have been for thousands of years, having gone through the scientific revolution, having gone through the enlightenment, having gone through the industrial age, quantifying learning, can, can we go back to the way it was when we still have these systems, which are themselves forms of power, because measurement is power, that, that that reduced us often again to numbers. I hope my my question, you know, that, that you can grab something on there, my, my confused question, but I think you understand where I'm going. No, 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 I get it. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm with you here. I mean, look, the psychometricians of the beginning of the 20th century uh, brought us into norm referencing and means testing. Um, so the work of um, Galton, of uh, Thorndike, of um, Binet is has left us with this legacy of quantifying learning. And we all know that it's very damaging uh, at a number of levels, uh, the hierarchy, the, uh, the competitive individualistic zero-sum uh, approach to learning, the high stakes narrowing of assessment, um, the fact that academics are really uh, describing social advantage, uh, that we're missing so much human potential. Uh, so, so what are we going to do with all this? Well. <laughs> This is why I set up this coalition to honor all learning of schools and universities to rethink assessment. And we're not the only people doing it. And that's okay because, you know, we have to work on this across the globe. Um, the OECD is looking at something similar. There's the uh, Character Collaborative in the US, the uh, Mastery Transcript Consortium. Uh, CIS is actually helping us, the Council of International Schools, they're part of our coalition. Uh, we, have to, we have to come together and and rethink assessment. So what we're doing in my school, and, and, and this is something that's really at the center of our coalition as well, it's, it's, it's called the Learner Passport. So what the passport is, it's a description of 
everything that a student has done in seven core areas. These are global competences that were designed after extensive collaboration with think tanks, universities, researchers, um, um, governments, seven global competences that we think are um, that won't go away in the future and, and cut across uh, all expressions of what it means to be human. Lifelong learning, self-agency, how you interact with the world, how you interact with other people, how you interact with tools and resources around you, transdisciplinarity, you know, thinking across disciplines, and multiliterateness, not just literacy and numeracy, but things like cultural literacy, financial literacy, scientific literacy. And we look for evidence of things that students have done in their schooling in these different areas. So we've coded just about every conceivable activity, extracurricular and uh, academic, in a student's uh, profile and fit them in this radial graph so that when you look at it, you can see spikes of a student's interpersonal or, um, you know, social, environmental, um, academic, motivational behaviors and achievements. And the beautiful thing is that each one is different. It's not just this blunt instrument where we say, okay, here's a number scale and you're at the top, you're in the middle, you're at the bottom. It doesn't work that way. You can't really compare them because each one's different because, hey, guess what? <laughs> each person is different. And if you're going to look at all the things that a young person's done, you'll find that they've expressed themselves in different areas in the arts, in sports, in social impact work, um, in social advocacy. And the academic ones are in there too. You know, We think this, the, the academic and non-academic ways of achieving a, a competence um, credit, if you like. So this is the system we designed, and we're actually releasing it to universities. And we've had some universities that have joined our coalition, Cornell, Toronto, for example. They're really interested. They're forward-looking. What they want is just like uh, us in, in the International School of Geneva, and I think many schools across the world, is to get away from this uh, narrow high-stakes assessment system and to find something that's describing human flourishing that captures learning wherever it's happened and can tell the whole story. So all those great things that students have been doing and continue to do, they count, you know, and, and they become part of the assessment story. Just the other day, I mean, literally two days ago, I was at this concert and, you know, the students were up there singing, playing the violin, uh, uh, playing the drums, so powerful. And you think, I mean, a lot of time's gone into that, a lot of energy's put into that. It's, it's a wonderful thing to see. And yet there's no place for it on an academic transcript. That's unacceptable. You know, that's not inclusion. So we've got to have a broadening of assessment. Our learner passport is one way of doing it. And if anyone listening to this call wants to know more, then you know, just check out the Coalition to Honor All Learning. You can find it through a web search or if you link in with me and, and you know, join our group. I, I find that fascinating. And um, I'll tell you, as a kid that's, uh, that, that I know who's taking business class, He's also doing an internship on Saturdays, and he's working on digital um, marketing for an organic farm. And he's in charge of their marketing, but he's not getting any credit for his business class. And then he has to sit in that class learning about marketing, which is, there's a lot to learn. Not, and, you know, not, not saying that, but he's saying, but I'm actually doing it, and I'm not being recognized for that. I mean, that's that's 
the, the word evades me what that is, and I can only think of absurd. It's, it's just nonsensical whatsoever. It's, your, it's like what you were saying very early on, the application. This is the application of learning. It should be recognized. It should be honored. It should be valued. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it doesn't only make school more inclusive for students. I think it also allows teachers to be more creative. Because the sad thing is, is you take uh, teachers in upper high school. You know, these are very talented people. But they're being forced to teach to this dog and pony show of test preparation. And a lot of the stuff they're doing, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually a waste of their skills. You know, I mean, marking papers and proctoring exams. I'm not saying that stuff isn't important. It shouldn't happen. But um, it'd be much more interesting if they could open up uh, the way that they teach, the way that primary and middle school teachers do. And, you know, let's just do projects. Let's slow down the learning. You know, let's not just be afraid of, of the curriculum so much. And, and this is not a student-friendly curriculum, by the way. It's not actually teacher-friendly either. Let's not be so afraid of the curriculum that we're not even teaching students to learn anymore. We're just rushing through content that we've got to do something about it. But you know, it's not easy because it's, I always say trying to fix education. It's like trying to fix a plane while it's in the air. Everybody's got their back against the wall. Uh, the stakes are high. Uh, there's a lot of pressure. That's why everyone's talking about change, but not many people are doing it. Because once you start doing it, I read somewhere that uh, trying to change curriculum is like uh, trying to, uh, to shift a graveyard. You know, it's, uh, it's difficult, but the more noise we make about it and the more we, we pilot these projects. And, and again, we come together, we, 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 we federate, I think the, the quicker the needle is going to move on that. And, and maybe, you know, uh, sooner rather than later, schools will be places of human flourishing that are really expressing, you know, the, the education 2030s view and, or education's 2030 view and, and, and others. Well, listen, I uh, really want to thank you for your time. And uh, I'm going to ask the last question. Uh, I know I promised there was only two questions that I would ask, but um, the third one is uh, probably the, maybe the easiest or the hardest, depending. What's on your horizons? What's on your mind? Um, what are you looking forward to in the next short, medium, long term? In under a week, I'll be united with my family, with my boy, my girl, my wife, and myself. We'll all be together just for a couple of days. And I'm really looking forward to that. It's, um, it's special. And, you know, being apart has made being together so special and so intense and something great about that. So that's my next project. Uh, really looking forward to it. Important first. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Conrad. I really appreciate the time. Thanks, Benjamin. This has been the Coconut Thinking Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We're in collaboration, as always, with Intrepid End News. Our website is www.coconut-thinking.design. Intrepid Ed is on www.intrepidednews.com. And lastly, as if you did need another URL, find out more about the Wiser Framework on www.wisr.life. In the meantime, we look forward to sharing our next episode next week and hope you're well. Please leave us your comments and speak to you soon. Bye-bye.